We are in part two of a series called Q&A, Questions and Answers. We're tackling some of the biggest questions of all time. And Pastor Chris did a great job of kicking us off last week talking about, is there more to life than this? I love this message series, and I love it specifically for the moment of time that we're in right now. Because there's people all over the world using the phrase deconstruction to talk about their faith journey. You see, people right now are asking questions about their faith, wondering what it really means and what is out there. Unfortunately, what seems to happen for a lot of people during this time of deconstruction is they get maybe ashamed or they feel shame from believers. And so what they do is instead of going to God and to to believers to ask these questions, they isolate, they go by themselves and they ask the world for some answers And occasionally what happens is they walk away. And this is not what we want. We want people to ask questions because asking questions is not inherently bad. In fact, when Jesus was on this earth, many people came up to him and asked him questions to help define their faith. And Jesus answered helping people construct their faith. And sometimes taking away things, deconstructing things that were not of him, that were of humankind, and constructing it properly with things that are of the mind of God. It's good to ask questions. And so this series is for you. If right now you're asking some questions, if you're wondering about this faith that we talk about and you want to know more about it, it's good, again, to ask questions because it's how we grow. When I was in high school, I'm so thankful for my youth pastor who took phone calls from me at all hours of the night whenever I was discovering this thing called Christianity. I would call him up and ask him questions, and he was always so gracious Never made me feel ashamed to wonder about the realities in the world. And a lot of times he gave me good answers. And sometimes he said, I don't know. And then he would go look and come back with some answers and say, I I still don't know because there's some things we don't know. In this series, we want to help you in the same way. We want to give you the answers that that we've been learning, that, that God has given us. And we don't have everything, as Pastor Chris said last week, but God has revealed a lot of himself to us. And so we're going to share about that. A couple weeks ago, we were in a series about faith, hope, and love. And during that series and hope, I talked about some struggles I was having about 11 months ago. And I'm so thankful that I had Pastor Chris and Pastor Barry that I got to go to and say, hey, I have these faith questions. Can you help me with them? And they answered them. So we want to be there for you. We want you to feel loved in this way. And we want to answer these questions for you. The series is also for you if you don't maybe have these questions, but you want to learn more about your faith so that you can go tell other people about Jesus. Because there's someone in your life probably, whether it's in your family or your friends, that doesn't know about Jesus or is asking these questions right now. And if you can't think of anyone in your life that is asking questions about Jesus, we got to go find people and get them into our lives because we're called to show the light of Jesus to everyone we encounter. And in this way, we'll be able to answer the call that Peter gave to us. And it was recorded in 1 Peter 3.15, which says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. So we're going to be able to explain our hope and our Savior, Jesus Christ, a little bit better today. And again, when we ask questions or people ask us questions, it's a good thing. Keeps us humble, makes us wise, helps us to grow closer to God. So today we're going to tackle some questions regarding Jesus, who's the most important person in all of history Jesus makes Christianity unique. Now, other religions acknowledge that Jesus lived on this earth, but we are the only ones that believe that he rose from the dead and he is the son of God. And so we're going to be talking about that and how we know that that is true. 
before we get into some questions regarding Jesus, I want to share with you our take-home point. Everything that we're going to be talking about today, all the scriptures we read are going to be pointing to this one thing. Jesus is the risen Son of God. Jesus came back from the dead. Jesus is God incarnate. And as we're talking about it, we're going to learn that Jesus did ask us to have faith in him and who he said he is, but he didn't ask us to have a blind faith. We can have a faith that is built on truth and on facts and on evidence, and we're going to talk about it today. But before we do that, let's go to God in prayer. Dear God, right now I pray that your Holy Spirit will just be in this place right now, that you'll be moving in our hearts and our minds. I pray for those that are in here right now asking these very questions, and I pray that you'll help them to feel close to you as you are close to them right now. God, I pray for anyone in here that knows you. I pray that you use this as an equipping time to help us to go and answer for the hope that we have in you. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start today with a very basic question. Did Jesus exist? We believe that Jesus is how God revealed himself to us. But how do we know? Where is the evidence? In order to know how we know that Jesus existed, We simply have to go to the history. Because there's a lot of historical facts about Jesus, both inside the New Testament and outside the New Testament. And before we get into the New Testament, let's look outside of it. We can go to early first century Roman historians named Tacitus and Suetonius who wrote about Jesus and documented that he lived on this earth. We can also go to the Jewish historian in the first century, his name is Josephus, who just chronicled what was happening when Josephus was alive. And in that time, Jesus was alive. And Josephus wrote this. There was about this time Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And when he says wonderful, the Greek for that is much closer to the word miraculous than it is to the word nice. He's talking about Jesus' miraculous works. In fact, there was other historians that said the same thing that weren't of the Christian faith, that said Jesus was doing miraculous things. And some of them said that they claimed that he was using witchcraft from the devil. And it's cool to read that from a, uh, like a Roman historian because we see Jesus be faced with that same question in the New Testament. It's cool when you look at Josephus' writings because he also talked about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. So we have evidence outside of the Bible, but we also have evidence inside the Bible, the New Testament. And a lot of times we dismiss the New Testament as evidence. We say, oh, well, that's just the Bible. It's so commonplace nowadays, we don't take it for what it is. But really, the Bible is a gathering of historical documents that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we must take it with the weight that it is. And so as we look at the New Testament, we see all about Jesus. But since it was written a long time ago, we might ask the question, how do we know that what is said in the Bible is what was said when it was originally written? That's a great question, and we can thankfully answer it with a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism is kind of like this. The more manuscripts you have and the earlier they are, the more you can be sure about what the original said. So historians have been looking at texts and finding out how long between when they were written and when they were found to determine their authenticity. So we have a chart of textual criticism to show you today. We're going to go through a few of them on there. we got at the top Herodotus and Thucydides, which I'm sure that's how you pronounce it, uh, was written in the 5th century. The earliest copies we have are from 900 AD, and that's a 1,300-year gap. We only find eight copies of each, but no historian 
would deny their authenticity. And then we have Livy's Roman history, where there's a 900-year gap and there's 20 copies found. In Caesar's Gaelic War, we have a 950-year gap and only 9 to 10 copies. And then Tacitus is the, the Roman historian that we talked about already. And then finally, we get to the New Testament, which is completely unprecedented and unique. It was written in AD 40 to AD 100, not very long after Jesus resurrected from the dead. The earliest manuscripts we find are from AD 130, and there's more than 25,000 of them. There's not eight, there's not 10, there's not 20, there's more than 25,000 in Greek and Latin and other languages. This is why no historian, whether they're Christian or not, would deny the truth that Jesus walked on this earth, that he existed. And God, through all of those manuscripts, is like shouting to us, this is important. Take notice, my son lived on this earth. So we can see that he existed. But it probably leads us to the next question. This is a popular question that people have. Was Jesus just a good moral teacher? So most people acknowledge his existence, but in order to deny his deity as God, people have said, well, isn't he just a good moral teacher? But to understand this, we simply have to look at Jesus' ministry. What did he teach on, and how did he talk about himself? Because Jesus had his whole ministry centered on him. Most good religious teachers don't do that. They say, look at God, go to God, find your salvation in God. But Jesus said, come to me, find your salvation in me. And still somehow doing that personified humility to everyone, whether they were Christians or not, people saw him as the standard for humility. But Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. He was inviting people to himself. John 14, 6 says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Good religious teachers usually don't go around and saying that salvation only comes through them, unless it's true. John 6.35 says, and this is Jesus talking again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus was saying that he's the only one that can fulfill the spiritual longing for God that is in all of us. There's this spiritual hole that only God can fill. And Jesus was saying, I am that God that can fill that need in you to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Then we can look at the fact that Jesus went around forgiving people of their sins. Sure, you can forgive someone if they come up and slap you in the face. You say, I forgive you. It might take a little while, but I forgive you. But Jesus went around and said, your sins, all of them, are forgiven. We can't just go around to anyone we encounter and say, your sins are forgiven. But this is what Jesus did. The religious leaders got really angry about this, saying only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus continued to do so. In fact, Jesus' claim to be God is why he was hung on the cross. But before he was killed in that manner, he was almost killed previously, and it's recorded in John chapter 10, verses 24 through 33. It says, The people surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
and give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. The father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we're stoning you, not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. This isn't just the language of your normal favorite teacher in school. Think of your favorite teacher, preschool or elementary school, college, whatever, and think of your interactions with them. I know for me, it was Mr. Armstrong, who always let me check my fantasy football scores on his computer. I'm sure he was a good teacher in other ways too. And Mr. Armstrong, if I would walk into his class one day, and he sat me down and said, hey, let's have a meal. Here's some bread. I'm going to break it, give it to you. This is my body, which is given to you. And eat it, remember my death for you. And then he goes, here's some wine. I know you're underage. Drink it. And remember my death and resurrection until you until I come again, for this is for the sins of many. I would probably check my scores, but then I would leave because that is not what a good teacher says. A good teacher doesn't normally claim to be God. C.S. Lewis, the great writer of Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia, put it all together and said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we can see Jesus existed and he was not merely a good human teacher. And we can take C.S. Lewis's quote as a springboard for our next question. Was Jesus then a lunatic, meaning that he thought he was God, but wasn't. Was he a liar, which means that he knew he wasn't God, but claimed to be God? Or is he the Lord, the risen Son of God? And as we've said already, I believe he is. How do we see that? Where's the evidence? Well, first, we got to go to his teachings. We look at his teachings to kind of tell us that he wasn't a lunatic or a liar. We see that he has some of the greatest, or he has the greatest moral teachings of all time. Think about it. In the last 2,000 years, we've improved as a society in so many ways. I mean, you think about even the vehicles that we drive today as opposed to walking or riding on horses back then. We've improved in a lot of ways, but we've never improved in the way of morality. In fact, most of our civilization here in the West is founded upon Jesus' teachings, and a lot of our laws originate from Jesus' teachings. I mean, we even have the golden rule coming right from Jesus. We can read in Mark 12, 31, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And in Luke 6, 31, do to others as you would like them to do to you. Jesus was also the first person to ever say, but I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. These are the kind of words that you would expect God to say. So we have his teachings, but we also have his character. We see his miracles and what he did on this earth, his miracles that weren't only in the New Testament, but people, other historians have claimed and written about them. And then we can see how he treated people. How he cared for the marginalized, he healed the sick, and he, he fed the hungry. 
Time Magazine even wrote about Jesus and said this regarding him. He is the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. No one's going to look at that and say, oh, that guy's probably insane. You see, we also have the fact that Jesus died for us. And his friends went around, his best friends went around saying, this guy is without sin. His mother, his half-brother, this guy is without sin. How many can we say that to our friends or our siblings? But they went around and pointed that truth out. And our real test of character oftentimes comes when we are under pressure. So let's look at Jesus. When he was under pressure and he was tortured, he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was put on that cross. As he did that, his character shined through as a character of God, not of a man. In fact, as he hung on that cross, a criminal near him trusted in him as Lord and Savior. After he died, a Roman centurion knelt down and acknowledged this was the Son of God. And Jesus, when he was on that cross, looked down at the people that were treating him this poorly and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So as we look at his actions, we can see his character. And then we can go to this quote. Now, last week, Pastor Chris had a quote from Alice Cooper, which was kind of funny, especially after I Googled him and found out who he was. Super funny. Uh, but today, we have a quote from Bono, who was a lead singer of U2. And he, now he's not like a great theologian, but this is, a, this is a great quote. It says this, I don't think you're let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher, because actually, he went around telling people he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was not. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. I believe Jesus was the son of God. And then we have some more evidence. We have the prophecies in which Jesus fulfilled. See, Jesus was the only one in all of history who had a collection of books written about him before he was born. The whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies that were told in the Old Testament, 29 of them in a single day. So some might have said, well, he's a liar. Maybe he was a clever con man. Maybe he got all the Old Testament scrolls. He went through them and found all the prophecies to fulfill well, there's so many problems with that. The first one is the sheer number, more than 300 prophecies. And then there's a truth that the Jewish community at large did not translate them to understand who Jesus really was. They thought he was going to come as a Messiah, as a conquering king to overthrow the government. So Jesus would have had to interpret all of them uniquely, how God intended them to be. And then there's the fact that he fulfilled so many prophecies that were outside of his control you have how he was born, how he died, and how he was buried. If he was a clever con man, he didn't do it very well. There wasn't a lot of people who trusted in him as Lord and Savior as he walked on this earth, and he didn't gain any money from it. What con man is going to say, hey, you have money to give me? Uh, go give it to the poor. But that's precisely what Jesus did. And what was the goal? What was the con? To die the most brutal death of all time. Again, it just doesn't seem logical that he would have been a lunatic or a liar, specifically because people did not even see him as a son of God until he raised from the dead. Which leads us to our next question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Again, this sets us apart 
from everyone. This changes the world as we know it, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But how do we know? Where is the evidence? Well, I believe we can point to four pieces of evidence to see that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The first one is this, Jesus' absence from the tomb. There's never been any good answer for why Jesus was not in the tomb except for what really happened. Some people have said, well, what about the authorities? Maybe they took Jesus so that the disciples don't go around telling people that Jesus has risen from the dead. But if that was true, would the authorities not have gone and shown the body and said, here he is, he's still dead. Some people have said, well, the robbers, maybe robbers came and stole the body. But when the disciples showed up to the tomb, it wasn't empty. They walked in and they saw the grave clothes that were wrapped around Jesus still there. In fact, the clothes that were wrapped around him were decompressed, kind of like a cocoon when a butterfly flies out of it. And then the head coverings that were wrapped around Jesus were taken, folded, and placed elsewhere. When the disciples ran in and they saw this, and those are the only two things that a robber would steal. They were the only valuable things in there. Robbers surely wouldn't go undress the body of the valuable things and then steal the body. When the disciples walked in there, that's when they believed. They knew that Jesus had risen. Which brings us to our second point, Jesus' presence with the disciples. Jesus appeared to the disciples and to more than 500 people on the earth. People saw him. They interacted with him. Now, some have said maybe hallucinations, but surely not with this many people. And specifically, the disciples, who are not people prone to that. They were hardened fishermen. They were cynical. They had actually thought that was that. There had been previous messiahs who claimed claiming that they were the messiah, and they had died. And when they died, their disciples scattered or were killed. And these disciples, Jesus' disciples, thought, okay, well, maybe that was done. They had walked away. But all of a sudden, they were transformed, which leads us to our third piece of evidence, the transformation of the disciples. They were discouraged. They were disillusioned. But then all of a sudden, they went walking around saying, he's alive. We have seen him. And if this was a lie that they were concocting, they surely wouldn't have done it in the way that they did. They wouldn't have said on the morning when he rose from the dead, a group of women led by Mary were going to treat the body. That wouldn't have given them any credibility starting the early church. They would have said, we were there. We showed up because we knew he was going to raise from the dead. But they went around then and they told everyone, we've seen him, we've interacted with him, he is alive, even to their deaths. Most of the disciples died horrific deaths, whether they were crucified or beheaded or crucified upside down or they were tortured. They were sent to their deaths because they would not recant the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he rose from the dead. Roman historians and even Josephus, the the early Jewish historian, both wrote about how James died. James, the half-brother of Jesus, died because he would not say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He kept saying that Jesus is the risen Son of God. This is, again, Jesus' half-brother. And so he was put to death because of his faith and because of his belief. So the disciples were transformed. Why? Because they had encountered the risen Jesus, which leads us to our fourth point. People are still meeting Jesus today. 
because of the resurrection, because of the disciples and this movement, which is completely unprecedented in all of history, people are still trusting and encountering the risen Jesus today. More than 2.3 billion people on this planet acknowledge that Jesus is the risen Son of God. People of every continent, every ethnicity, every social, intellectual background have trusted and experienced Jesus. In one of our membership classes recently, someone said that when they trusted in Jesus, Lord and Savior, she felt a spiritual hug from Jesus. She encountered Jesus. When I gave myself my life over to Jesus, Lord and Savior, I was kneeling down, my hand was up, and I felt a squeeze of my hand from Jesus. No one was there. These weren't things that someone told us to experience. These weren't things that people said, hey, whenever you trust in Jesus, go and tell people that this happened. This was a true encounter. And after I trusted in Jesus, my whole life has changed because of who he is and what he did. So as we look at Jesus, we look at the evidence, I believe completely that Jesus is the Son of God, the risen Son of God. Every belief, every faith that is out there, every belief, honestly, takes some sort of faith. I believe that Jesus asks us to have faith in him, but it is the smallest step of faith that we can take on any of the religions, any of the beliefs that are out there because of all the evidence that God has for us because he's revealed to us over and over who Jesus is and that God is our God. He's wired us to desire him. This leads us to our last question, which is why did Jesus die? So Jesus, the son of God, why would he die? We've talked about him dying, but why would it happen Many have called it the self-substitution of God, how God was in our place. Modern example of self-substitution happened in 1941. At Auschwitz concentration camp, there was a prisoner who escaped, and the Gestapo wanted to punish these prisoners, so they lined up 10 men at random, and they were going to send them to the starvation bunker. The 10th man that came forward was a man named Francis Gajovnicek. And Francis came forward, and he said, oh, no. My wife, my kids are never going to see me again. And in response, a small Polish priest named Maximilian Kolbe sat forward and said, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids, please take my life instead. And to everyone's astonishment, the Gestapo honored this request and they substituted out in this line Maximilian for Francis and they were sent to the starvation bunker. This was in July of 1941. On August 14th of 1941, all the men except one had perished. During that time when they were in there, it seemed like, and people have said this, that it was a worship service, that Maximilian Kolbe was leading hymns and prayers with the people. And on August 14th, the Gestapo entered, and they found Maximilian Kolbe alive by himself. And what they did was they injected him with carbonic acid to kill him. 41 years later, there was a service honoring his life and his death, remembering the sacrifice he had. 150,000 people gathered there. And at that service, Pope John Paul II said this, the death of Maximilian Kolbe, that Polish 47-year-old priest who stepped forward to give his life, that was a victory like the one won by our Lord Jesus Christ because he gave himself, he gave up his life out of love. Francis Gajovnicek was there in the audience that day, and he would invest the rest of his life telling everyone who would listen about the man who died in his place. In an even more wonderful and amazing way, Jesus has done the same thing for us. 
and to understand why we just have to go back to the beginning of creation. See, God is a perfect God, and he created us in his perfect image to dwell in his perfect presence perfectly. A lot of perfects in there. That's how God created us to dwell with him. Unfortunately, the first two people, Adam and Eve, sinned. They did something against God's will, making themselves no longer perfect, no longer able to go completely into God's presence. But God created us to dwell in relationship with him. He wants us to have a love relationship with him. He gave us free will so we could choose to be in this love relationship. But unfortunately, when we sinned, we got consequences for our sin. Reaction has a reaction, and our our sin caused us to lead to mortal death, but then eternal death as well. Why? Because we were separated from God. And if we're separated on this earth, it's going to affect us, but then once we die, we were separated from God forever, and we call it hell. Well, God did not want this to be the reality. So what he did was he sent Jesus in our place to die because a penalty needed to be paid for our sins. Someone needed to erase those sins to remove them from us so that we could again come into this perfect relationship with God. So Jesus did this for us. He died for your sin and for mine so that when we trust in him, we gain the relationship with God here and in eternity, which we call heaven. Watchman Nee wrote this, and it was in his book, The Normal Christian Life. The Son of God died instead of us for our forgiveness. He lives inside of us for our deliverance. So we can speak of two substitutions, a substitute on the cross who secures our forgiveness and a substitute within who secures our victory. Jesus died and rose again for our forgiveness and our victory. So let our lives reflect that truth. We've seen the truth that points to Jesus being alive and the Son of God. So let us live in a similar way that Francis Gajovnicic lived, where he went around telling everyone about the one who died in his place. Let us do the same thing. And we can do that through today's next step, which is simply I will share about Jesus with someone I encounter this week. Someone in your life needs to know what we're talking about today. Someone in your life is asking these questions. Let us answer them. So today we learned about who Jesus is, and each of us are faced with the choice. Is Jesus who he says he is, or is he a liar? If he's a liar, then we just go about life as we know it and just keep doing our own thing. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then that changes everything. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and Jesus is who he says he is, then today we need to change that. Today is the day that you can accept him as your Lord and Savior. And here at New Life, we say it is as simple as ABC. A, we admit that we're a sinner and that we need Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. And B, we believe, we believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And C, we confess. We confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we commit to following him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now I'm going to pray a prayer and you can either say it with me or you can say it in your own words. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner. And God, I admit that I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And God, I believe, I believe that Jesus is who he said that he is. And I believe that he came here to rescue me from my sin. And I believe that he came here to die on that cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose again on the 
third day, and that because of Him, one day I can be with you in heaven, God. And so I just believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and God, I commit to following Him every day of my life, and I confess to everyone that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and God, I will tell people about Jesus, and I will tell people that there is something different about me because of Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray.